0: The theme of this retreat is the integration of love and wisdom, or compassion and liberating understanding. And I wanted to talk to you tonight about why we need to do that, why we need to integrate both of those in our lives as human beings and as Dharma practitioners so that we can live a life of dharma, live a life of understanding with more ease, so that it can come to us in a way in which we can relax into the understanding rather than push back at it. So in our practice of study and meditation, we begin to open to the fact of how vulnerable we are as human beings I don't think anybody here could deny that Mm -hmm. Um, all of what you've taken in today and in your life and and just today and the few times that you sat here and you walked alone in the forest and you just really felt the vulnerability of who you are of how things change within you of how can't hold on to the sunshine and can't make the rain go away. It just does what it does. And we have to constantly shift in order to be with life as it is. And we have to work and be with our own ideas of how we think it should be. You know, that's, a little, that's a little pushing and pulling, if not a lot. So it's not easy to really open to this vulnerability that we are as human beings. The hallmarks of vulnerability in our life are birth. You know, when a baby's born, usually babies baby's crying. It's hard to be birthed. <laughs> it's hard for the mother. It's hard for the child. Aging, sickness, dying... The process of dying, death itself, being with those we don't like, being separated from those we love through death or any other way, wanting to have what is pleasant and then wanting to hold on to it. When it can't hold on to it, it ends. Running away from what's unpleasant, but it remains. So we're, we're dealing with all of that vulnerability in our lives. And it's just so in our face, right? But it's not taught in the school. <laughs> it's not like... But the Buddha taught it like as a science or kind of even as a medical model to understand that there is this kind of sickness that we're all facing in life. This vulnerability that we all have as human beings. And that's a statement of fact. What is it caused by? Does it have an end? And the path to the end of it. And this is the Four Noble Truths. This is what I'd like to speak about tonight. Of course, everything that I'm saying around the Four Noble Truths, and I especially want to highlight the First Noble Truth, doesn't diminish at all the beauty in our lives. Everything I say isn't diminishing, demeaning, or wiping out that the beauty and the joy in our lives shouldn't be enjoyed. It should be enjoyed, and it is enjoyed, but also at the same time to know that it doesn't last so we can enjoy it as it comes, as it changes, and really appreciate that we had it when it goes. It's hard to open to all that, which is why we need to incline our minds towards love, towards just having that deep respect for ourselves and others, that connection with ourselves that we know we're respectable, noble people, that we can have compassion for what's vulnerable in ourselves and in others. We need that side of life in order to get through the understanding, to take it in and to live and be in alignment with the understanding that there is vulnerability in life. If we don't have that side of love and compassion, it's much harder to really be liberated. We can't even go there without compassion. That's why the Buddha said compassion was so important. The love that is compassion. So we need both love and wisdom to navigate this journey we call life. And tonight I'd like to put more emphasis on the wisdom side. And through the days, you know, we'll be doing the metta, integrating uh, compassion and also the love that's equanimity. Carl Jung, this, this statement by Carl Jung always fascinated me, even when I wasn't in the Dharma so much, when I just was beginning to open to Dharma understanding. He said, Enlightenment doesn't mean envisioning bodies of light. It is making the darkness known. It's just being real with how things are in, our, in ourselves, in life, with others. And that really, that really attuned to intuitively how I felt about life. That so much of my life up to that point this was maybe about 40, 38, 40 years ago, so much of my life I could see was avoiding the unpleasant and running towards the pleasant. So that in itself was a lot of suffering and didn't see that it was caused by this vulnerability. So this morning I read the quote by Utejaniya, which is similar to uh, Carl Jung. The moment there is awareness, it replaces not knowing with knowing. So it doesn't actually mean that, you know, all of a sudden we know, we see a moment of impermanence and all of a sudden we're enlightened. But to know it over and over and over again, to open to the unsatisfactoriness of life over and over and over again, soon that understanding that kind of drops in by our really facing what's going on reaches some kind of critical mass, then tipping point, and then all of a sudden there is a big aha. You know, we've been, this enlightenment thing is not all of a sudden. It's it's sort of like over ages and ages of time that we come to understand what's going on really and open up to it. Utejaniya, in another quote, says, the work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. So it's what I said in the beginning yesterday uh, evening, that awareness is alone is not enough. I remember when I was in one of the first uh, retreats, month-long sit Taishaniya gave, and he, we were talking about awareness and wisdom. And he said, all of a sudden, he's just out of nowhere, he said, Awareness alone isn't enough. You can't just be aware, 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 and not get anything from it. You know, just being present and enjoying the moment or whatever, or seeing what's going on in the moment is not enough. It's really taking what you garner from that moment, and making wisdom out of that. So the work of wisdom is to differentiate what leads to suffering and what leads to liberation. Basically, that's another way of saying what he just said. What's skillful, what's unskillful. What leads to suffering, what leads to liberation. To nurture what leads to liberation to see if we can look at what leads to suffering, learn from that, and to not go down that path. So in trying, um, going through so many of my notes and trying to suss out what, what could I say about all this that makes this point of how things, love and wisdom, need to come together. This is one of the first wisdoms that the Buddha realized. You know, as I told you, I was at an Achancha monastery in New Zealand, and I was surrounded by the teachings of Achan Sumedo and Suchito and Amaro and Achancha and heard their chantings on tapes and Heard, um, saw videos of Achan Shah, We had video night every Saturday night, and it was it was just wonderful to kind of feel, be in the blessing of that, to be in the protection of that. And here's a, a story that Achan Sumedo told, and how kind of he looked at it, it was it was interesting. He said that after the Buddha's enlightenment, on his way to Varanasi. It said that when he got to Varanasi, a little past Varanasi is Sarnath, and that's where the Buddha gave his, what he called his first uh, Dhamma talk to the five ascetics. And the Dhamma talk is called the Dhamma Chaka Chaka Pavarana Sutta. And that meant the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. That's when the the Dhamma just started to be released into the world. Gives me the goosebumps, you know, because that was when... In this world cycle, that Dhamma, which has been in previous world cycles told, was retold for this cycle, this cycle that we're living in to understand. And so on his way there, he met an ascetic who noticed his very fine radiant appearance. And he stopped the who the, this uh, beautiful Buddha and said, what happened to you? What, what have you discovered? And the Buddha said to him, I am the perfectly enlightened one, the Buddha. And the ascetic said, Okay. And he just went on another path. He wasn't impressed at all. So, Achan thought was, Well, that, that kind of um, statement doesn't really help anybody. I, I don't think I'm going to say that again. <laughs> so I, I I thought I thought it was pretty funny. And um <laughs> so then after that he met up with the five ascetics in that in Sarnath that he um that he practiced with. And he had pretty much gone beyond them. And he really discovered the way to the end of suffering, not just the way towards this kind of what seemed like eternal bliss, but which would end eventually. But the way to get through this morass called life and get to the other side where we could really understand what we're going through and be liberated from that and by that, actually. So he gave the first talk, um, which was the Four Noble Truths, and when he gave that talk, e- eventually all the five ascetics were completely liberated. And um, it was, a, I think a couple of them became liberated when he gave the second talk, the lakana Sutta. But anyway, it was pretty powerful. And this talk of the Four Noble Truths is really uh, the kind of like the core of the Buddha's teaching. And it is something that all of the other teachings that the Buddha gave are centered around. And this talk is classified as a wisdom talk. It's classified as right view, the first of the Eightfold Noble Path, right view. So it's very important to start out with this understanding when we're on the path. So this turning of the wheel of the Dharma, that's what the sermon was called, It's the powerful understanding that forms the inner core of almost all Buddhist traditions. So in this sermon, the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering. When you ask the Buddha, uh, when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he would give it in very simple terms sometimes. He would say, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And what he was referring to actually was the Four Noble Truths. It's just opening the understanding to suffering so that we can accept the life we're in and really face it, and what's the cause of it, what could be the end of it, and the path to the end of it. So these are the truths that we're investigating now, confirming for ourselves, not based on blind belief, but based on our own experiential understanding. Essentially, um, this first noble truth, the opening to uh, understanding dukkha, is the beginning of right view. So if we if we haven't opened to the first noble truth, then every place we go on the path is like incomplete if we don't really understand what we're living with in the first noble truth. Which states in this way, um, there is the truth of suffering. So the first noble truth is called in Pali, dukkha satcha. Now some people translate that first noble truth that life is suffering, but that's a very poor translation of that dukkha-satcha. Dukkha means suffering, sacha means truth. So there is the truth of suffering. I mean, probably in the beginning, that's why the Dharma or the Buddhist teaching didn't get very many um, takers on because... In the West, when you say life is suffering, well, who wants to learn that? (laughs) You know, let's go someplace else. So there is the truth of suffering. Um, Sometimes it's called arya Satcha. Arya means ennobling. It's the ennobling truth of suffering. It brings the ordinary people to the noble attainment of liberation. So Arya means noble or ennobling. So the understanding of opening to it kind of brings us to that liberation. When we can nobly accept suffering and acknowledge that our life is unfolding in a particular way, it has a particular suchness to it, despite our preference for otherwise. The Buddhist first truth tells us that dissatisfaction is unavoidable. And guess what? This is what we're just always trying to avoid. Dissatisfaction. You know, we have a little pain here, or a big pain, or something's a certain way, and we're just always trying to fix it, or get around it, or get over it, or, you know, the whole thing. If I'm mindful, maybe it'll go away. That kind of thing. It's part of life dissatisfaction is is part of life and the problem is that we're resisting it all the time. We're resisting it or another way the Buddha put it in, um, in the second noble truth is that there is a cause and the cause is craving. It's wanting other than what's happening right now, basically. But being able to bear our pain with honesty and dignity is really a beautiful way to do our lives. To really face it and not back down from what we're facing and not try to be something otherwise. Be other than what we are actually experiencing. So being... You know, you being as Dharma practitioners and um, many of you quite along the way on the path already know how it is to be in the Dharma and then when maybe you have friends that when you come across something difficult and they really try to, um, they want you, want it to not be difficult for you, sometimes not for you, but sometimes for themselves, so you're not a bother to them. <laughs> um, but and they try to put you in a place where you should know better, you know. But I must say that's one of the dukkhas that I experience. That that really annoys me because if there's dukkha, I want to I want to say that there's dukkha. I don't want to say, oh no. I'm not going through it. I'm, you know, I'm a Dharma teacher, and I I know how to be over that or whatever it is. It's really important just to admit it, to say, yeah, you know, my name is Kamala and I suffer, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, of course, we don't have to shout it out to the world, but it's really empowering for oneself mm-hmm. to come to that truth, to actually admit that truth to ourselves, and, and to talk about it to people that we trust, of course, to be discreet about what what's going on with oneself. So it's part of life. It's being able to bear our pain with honesty and dignity, and um, it empowers us. And in that way, when we can say, when we can really admit, oh, this is hard, this isn't easy, what, we're, what I'm going through, what you're going through, then that, that's love. That's compassion. That's a softening around the dukkha. That's, the, that's what we need to really make dukkha real and not something like we shouldn't be experiencing it. So when these two things come together, love and wisdom, it's really powerful. And it's really opening. And we can see the truth of life in a way that helps us to bear it with dignity. So I want to weave that in as I go along why it's important to have that quality, that other side, the wing of the Dharma that's love, that's compassion. So actually, you know, a lot of people say, well, this is not a very positive message, the truth of dukkha. But actually it is very positive because the first thing that the Buddha wanted to do was to state how it is to really just admit how it is. And we can do something about it. It's not an absolute statement because in the third noble truth it says there is an end to dukkha. So that first statement isn't absolute. That doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. That there is a possibility to go beyond that. Instead of being at the mercy of it and resisting the truth of it, we can meet it directly, and we can be in alignment with the truth. We can live in alignment with the truth, with integrity. So when you break down, a lot of the scholars in Pali like to break down these words because it gives a deeper understanding of what these things really mean. Like in the time of the Buddha, why did they use the word dukkha? If you look that up in a Pali dictionary, there's like four pages or more of little tiny print that expre- explains the word dukkha, describes it. So you can't just say suffering. But in the Pali, it's broken down. One way it's broken down is like this. The du, the du in dukkha means not good. It, it's, it's not satisfactory. And ka is describing the hub of a wheel that's not put on center. It's kind of off-center. So when the hub of that wheel is off-center, you can imagine when it turns around and around, it's a bumpy ride, right? So that's why they use the word dukkha. The truth of suffering. It's a very positive message. I was uh, reading in an article by um, Tanisara, she was a nun in the Achancha tradition and recently, a few years ago, disrobed and in teaching in, um, in Africa now. She put this poem in, in a, um, a, a talk she gave about dukkha. It's by Mark Nepo. It's beautiful. He says, Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. You can, you know, get that vision of like, just those irritations that are happening in this body-mind with us as human beings. And it makes us shine, it makes that pearl, that wisdom come out in us. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. And also, you know, some people would say to me and others on the path in my position, you know, with peers, they would say, Oh, just think, Kamala, how, how much more wise you're going to be after all this suffering. <laughs> and I'd say, I don't want to hear that right now, you know. <laughs> I am not there right now. Right now, I am in suffering. So would you please just notice that? I mean, you don't have to feel sorry for me, but that's where I'm at. And I'm not going to deny it. Um, Yeah, but I don't have to bring people down with me either. So, (laughs) When we experience this first noble truth, when we practice here in the stillness and see what goes on in the body, there's all kinds of subtleties that we see. There's the discomfort, the unpleasantness in the body. And automatically we, we move away from it. There are thoughts that come up of discontentment, of that we want it to be different somehow. And, you know, we're, we're constantly grappling. There are moments of real stillness and beauty, of course, when we walk around here and we take in nature and feel the gratitude. And there are beautiful moments, of course, but check it out, how many moments that we just don't feel like things are satisfactory. It's We're running towards something else all the time, trying to either cover up what's painful or run away from it or distract ourselves somehow. That's why we think a lot. We think we're going to end up with something that's finally going to say, okay, now you're free of all this but sort of like a dog chasing its tail. Sometimes, not all thoughts are like that. The consumer world we live in has taken advantage of this instinct, you know, to run away from difficulty and distracted us from seeing the core truth of life. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the way it is on this human realm. I'm not blaming, you know, all those... Um, people that sell those beautiful things in stores, I get attracted to them too. I'm just saying, it's how it is in this life. And we really have to be careful about that. That's why sometimes we take eight precepts to see whether we can not be distracted by needing to eat when we don't really need to. Sometimes putting all kinds of things on us that um, help us to look more young or beautiful or what but just to see it as see our life as it is nothing wrong with that but sometimes when we don't have those uh, places where it's distracting us we see things more clearly so we're constantly chasing after pleasant and not knowing that it's dukkha because dukkha is the core of dukkha is ignorance We're identified with the pain or what's difficult. This is also dukkha, being identified with what's going on. We blame others. This is dukkha. We project onto ourselves when we feel a kind of suffering and think that it's our personal failure. This is dukkha. There are so many ways so in this activity of complex reactions to what we experience as human beings, we fail to just face it and accept the truth of it. which is constantly trying to move it around and see if we can understand it, in, which is really helpful in a psychological way. And that helps us. But what helps us really face it I mean, psychologically, I I go through my own psychological help and I have really good help um, in that field. And mostly, my therapist says to me, if you can feel it, you can heal it, because she practices mindfulness. And so just to touch that moment of feeling that dissatisfaction is a medicine. Just to touch it with awareness or with compassion. That's a medicine. If you can feel it, you can heal it. Being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. Just allowing it to land instead of avoiding it all the time. So we learn to navigate the muddy and rough waters uh, of this life through this kind of practice. And sometimes, you know, you have to in order to navigate the waters, you have to take your ship into the wind. You can't always be in a safe harbor. You have to know how to do what you do in your life in rough waters. So a lot of what happens, though, is we we have reactivity to this truth. You know, we we experience dukkha and then... The reaction to it, instead of equanimity, which is, this is the way it is, open to it with love, the reactivity to it is, I don't like this. And that. so we're adding another layer of dukkha to our experience. We'll push it away. Or that dukkha is the dukkha of aversion. Or we... We add to it, we say, I want something else. Okay, if this isn't working, I'm going. I'm out of here. I'm going someplace else. I'm going to do something else. We, so it's attachment. I mean, sometimes we need to go someplace else, and that's wisdom, but it's attachment sometimes. We want to run away towards something else. Or sometimes it's like, oh, let's cover it up. Let's distract ourselves. And that's delusion, So there are so many ways that we see that we're adding more dukkha to dukkha. And the antidote to all that is just to face it, just to be with it. So this is what we're learning here. Can we sit with the body in pain and not always move when a moment of pain arises? Can we just stay with it? Or when a thought arises that, you know, we really don't like, can you just see it as this energy arising and passing away? Or an emotion comes that we're really sick and tired of, you know, it's like, oh, again. And we just kind of weary out on that. And can you just kind of oomph it up um, for a moment? Just say, okay, just for a moment, just touch this moment. so we're learning ways to just be with all of those difficult things that arise in our lives in this kind of container is like looking at dukkha through a magnifying glass that's why it's not so easy so the four noble truths and the first one is essentially the starting point of all the teachings the buddha gave the container The truth of suffering, dukkha satya, should be investigated. So, these, this is the way the Buddha recommended that we relate to this first noble truth, dukkha It should be investigated, and so we have the saying in the Dharma, "Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself." Um, Manindra, I would always hear my first teacher saying that to people. You know, they'd want him to explain everything. And of course he would. You would ask him a question and he would answer that question until the last person in the room would leave. And he could just go, he could connect every single four of this, five of that, you know, seven of this, the three of that. He would just start connecting all the different, you know, numbers of... um, the seven factors of enlightenment the, the five of this and the four of that etc. Mm-hmm. So then he finally would say well come and see for yourself. You know the teacher can only point the way but you have to walk the way yourself. And so ehi pasiko come and see for yourself. Investigate it. So here that's what we're doing. We're really I mean we can't say come and investigate dukkha you, you wouldn't be here if we gave that kind of... But love and wisdom, oh, that would attract you. <laughs> so, but really, we have to have this love and wisdom to investigate that dukkha. So when all the distractions are gone, or at least lessened, you know, when we're here in retreat like this, when the dust settles, we get a sobering view of what's going on beneath the surface. And it's really challenging to see that. It takes so much to just sit with it. I mean, when I sit here and I look out at you, you know, you mostly, you all look like angels. Mostly. <laughs> of course, sometimes, you know, you really don't. but <laughs> Because, you know, it hurts. And you've got a grimace on your face or something. But mostly you do. But I know from sitting here, too, that... All kinds of trash goes through the mind, you know. If we could put it up on a, on a screen here, I mean, you would think, wow, how does that woman get through her sitting? Well, there, there are a lot of tools we use and, and I use, and the one thing is you get so used to it that you, you just don't identify with all that trash. It's just stuff that goes through You see it, and you, and you know that's not you. It's just part of the conditioning that goes through the mind. So you get a sobering view of what's going on beneath the surface. And I'm not disidentified from everything. I just have to say that. I don't want to make myself out to be, you know, this completely free person. So part of being human is to experience deep vulnerability... And if you want to be on this path, you have to be willing to experience deep vulnerability. Or uh, otherwise you'll quit. And people quit, but then they come back because they know they can do it. They know that they face something and they can do it again. Or... We've all experienced some kind of calm, some beauty of the heart that brings us back over and over again. That one moment when you heard a bird sing or you were sitting here and you experienced a moment of metta, that is a powerful, huge moment that brings us back or experience deep stillness in the mind. So part of being human is to experience deep vulnerability and to experience that the other side of that can be known and there can be more moments of that. Part of being human is experiencing that every moment is changing and shifting. It's like we're on shifting sands all the time and we're trying to find security somewhere, but we can't because it's always changing. It might last for a longer time than we had hoped, but then that changes, too. There's nothing permanent, there's nothing solid anywhere, or there's nothing, anything that's solid, even in this human body, as we all can understand, or even in this mind, there's nothing permanent or solid. There are as many moments, different moments of knowing as there are objects. So knowing is not something permanent. When an object arises, a particular knowing moment, a particular consciousness arises with that moment. It comes together and it passes away, both of them. And then different moments of objects arise and a new moment of knowing. So even people get... Think that, oh, it's the knowing that's permanent. That's permanent. That's always there. But when the mind sees really clearly, it sees that even that goes away. It's a very subtle understanding through experience. It's not about reading it or believing it. So we see nothing in the mind either is permanent. Life isn't what we want it to be. Life cannot provide lasting security. It's not, like Mark Twain says, um, self-discovery is not always good news. You know, it's... But what happens is that we learn to live with that truth. And every moment that we're living with these changing experiences, we're getting those drops of truth. It's being fed to us, drop by drop by drop. And at some point, it really, like I say, reaches its critical mass because of the continuity of mindfulness. And the tipping point comes, and it's like, it really tips the mind over into some wisdom about the impermanence, the not-selfness, and the unsatisfactoriness of life. And so this, this is subtle, but it's huge. It really shifts us into living life in alignment with how things are instead of fighting how things are, avoiding it. So that it changes, life changes in every moment, is not the problem. And we make that the problem. The problem is that because we've not seen clearly, because it's not been investigated how it actually is, because there is attachment to how we want to have it or think life should be. That's the problem. And that's, that's all part of the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth of suffering is the ailment. To be born into this world is to experience the unsatisfactory states of sickness, old age, and death of associating with things we do not like, of being separated from things we like, of not attaining our wishes. This is the ailment that should be investigated. It's like we're doing research here. The cause, the second noble truth, the noble truth of the origin of suffering. We suffer because we do not understand the nature of our existence and because we want the conditions in our lives to be other than they are or they were. All suffering is the outcome of craving, wanting it to be as we want it to be. Craving rooted in ignorance. So this is the second noble truth. The truth of the cause of suffering is craving rooted in ignorance. And the Buddha recommended that we relate to this cause of suffering, the second noble truth, in a way that um, abandons it, relinquishes craving. So when we see the wanting in our minds, then what we notice is that the wanting, the stickiness is there, the, the kind of reaching out for something is there. And that's okay in our lives. I'm not diminishing how that needs to happen in our lives when we need to reach out for connection or for love or for something, for food, because we're hungry and we need it. So I'm I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying that when it comes up here on the sitting cushion, there are so many ways that wanting is leading to suffering. And that's when the Buddha said, Wisdom is distinguishing what leads to suffering and what leads to liberation, abandoning what leads to suffering, and nourishing what leads to wisdom. So when wanting comes up, what do we do? We let go of the object of the wanting. Whatever it is, you know, we want something different to be in our lives differently, We want an object. We want a person. We want a better sitting. One of my yogi friends said, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day. (laughs) Because we we keep looking for it, you know. Can we sit in this perfect... How did I sit this morning? And I was kind of... My one cheek was down like this, so I'll sit like that, you know. So we try to do everything to... And it doesn't get there. So we, we let go of the object of what we want and we turn the attention to the wanting itself. So this is the practice of mindfulness of mind. Turning the attention to the defilement itself, the wanting mind, and really being with that defilement. If we turn the attention to the wanting itself, what do we see? we see that it's moving and changing and doing all those things that make it impermanent. And ultimately, ultimately we see that even that moment of wanting, it dissolves, it goes away. So that third uh, noble truth, that there is an end to suffering, you can see it right there. I mean, that's a very simple example of it. But it's very true. When, when the mind sees that wanting is not there anymore, what happens in the mind? It feels purified. It feels fresh. It feels clean. There's not that stickiness, that going after, that puts you in an imbalance. There's that kind of being in the moment with a dignity and a clarity of mind and heart. And we notice the kind of um, inherent purity of the mind in that moment. So this is called what what our teachers would call the mini-enlightenment, you know, just momentary. So we know it's possible. We know it's possible for dukkha to end. This is a very important moment in our lives. So, we're not trying to investigate, you know, what made the object the way it was, what made our life the way it was, although that's really important in our unfolding as human beings to go through that psychologically. But it's going more deeply than that, it's coming to know the impermanence of everything, even that wanting moment. Wanting it to be otherwise, other than what it is now, other than what it was before. Um, I'm trying to remember a quote, it will come to me. So the heart of the Buddha's teaching is distilled in his admonition nothing whatsoever should be clung to but really nothing whatsoever could be clung to <laughs> because what we see is that it all disappears anyway it's all evanescent i mean i'm saying this to you but i wish i could remember that with everything that i experience <laughs> in my life i i really can't you know but i know i know it enough Mm-hmm. You know, that my life is headed towards the end of suffering. That's a surety. But until then, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot that's being clung to, and it's suffering. But it's lessened. When we understand this truth, that kind of suffering is lessened. It's not something that we our whole lives are ruined by. You know, we, we can go on, even though we know something drastic has changed in our lives. So the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, um, it can happen. It's possible. There's an the ailment, the first noble truth, the cause, the noble truth of suffering. There's the cause, the origin of suffering is craving. And the prognosis is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering can happen. Suffering ends when we recognize the impermanent nature of physical and mental conditions. Craving and ignorance are eradicated through understanding. That's why I'm going to talk about the Eightfold Noble Path later in another Dharma talk, but the first uh, of the... uh, uh, Eightfold Noble Path is right view or right understanding and it's right here it's the third noble truth if we understand this really then we can live with more confidence on, on our path but we have to be willing to face you know the the suffering experiencing the origin of the truth of suffering so all of this I want to read to you from the Buddha's words, because I find relating the Buddha's words are very powerful rather than just coming from myself. So the Buddha gave this this talk on the Four Noble Truths many, many times. It's the core teaching of the Dharma. And one time he gave this talk when he was living in Kosambi in a wood of simsapa trees as the story goes he picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus the the monks who were around him practicing how do you conceive this bhikkhus which is more the leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those in the trees of of all this forest and the The Bhikkhu said, the leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the woods are far more. So too, Bhikkhus, said the Buddha, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them? Because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the holy life. And because they do not lead to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told you? because it brings benefit and advancement in the holy life and because it leads to dispassion to fading, to ceasing, to stilling to direct knowledge to enlightenment, to Nibbana so bhikkhus, let your task be this this is suffering this is the origin of suffering this is the cessation of suffering this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering and so the way leading to the cessation of suffering is a noble truth of the Eightfold Path. And I'll speak about that another, another time. So this is what the Buddha spoke of, which is letting us know in many different ways through different Um, talks that he gave about his confidence that we can actually experience this in this very life that we don't have to wait till some other lifetime or world cycle that the Four Noble Truths and the paths that lead towards the end of suffering is right before us and we're actually right on it and we can practice it and it's something to develop so, the fourth noble truth, the way that we can relate to it is to be developed, it said. So, this is from um, somebody I know who said this to me Compassion and kindness are a big part of the process, and lots of people reportedly blame themselves for their difficulties. But some conditions you have to learn to live with because they aren't going to disappear no matter how determined a person is or how strong the drugs are. Mm-hmm. There's something very beautiful about learning to walk beside whatever difficulty you've got with dignity, acceptance, and grace. And that's opening to the Four Noble Truths. So let's sit for a moment with that. So may we be ennobled by our practice and by understanding and living in alignment with the Four Noble Truths. for your kind attention. So for those of you who are wondering about that. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.